Listen to the following excerpt, if you would, from an article published just a few years ago. There's an elaborate nativity scene in Cathedral Square in Vilnius, the capital of Lithuania. It depicts everything from the baby Jesus to the three wise men and a collection of animals, including sheep and a camel. Well, researchers at Vilnius Gediminas Technical University have now rendered that scene in nanoscale proportions and nicknamed the project Nano Jesus. I think I have a picture of it here on the screen. The team behind the Nano Nativity says it is the world's smallest and they've submitted to the Guinness World Records for certification. The scene is 10,000 times smaller than the original. 10,000 times. 10,000 times smaller than the original, the real world nativity that it's based on. That entire nativity could sit on a human eyelash. And the baby Jesus is smaller than a human cell. Now, <laughs> when it comes to microscopic molding, reducing our Redeemer to smaller than a human cell is pretty incredible, isn't it? Wow. But when it comes to spiritual perspective, spiritual vision, that same project is sadly more common than you think. Turn, if you haven't, to Hebrews chapter 1. As most of you know, uh, our daily reading plan, it's available there and back with our core documents on the right-hand side of the counter. Our daily reading plan has brought us to the book of Hebrews. Just a couple days ago on Friday, we ended up in Hebrews chapter 1. This morning, We're going to explore the opening verses of not only the chapter, but the entire book of Hebrews. It's an amazing introduction to an amazing book. Now, before we look at those verses, it's important that we understand something about the author's intention in writing this book almost 2,000 years ago to to his original readers. Shocker, Hebrews was written for Hebrews. (laughs) You probably guessed that from the title. So the book was written for Jews who had confessed Jesus as both Lord and Savior, but subsequent, subsequent trials had tested the genuineness of their faith. Some were beginning to drift back to a, a Christless Judaism. Others were leaning that way, listening to Jewish arguments that stressed the traditional things of Judaism, traditional things like the need for sacrifice in the temple, the need for the priesthood. But these arguments and these these voices also touched on popular ideas like invoking the help of angels calling upon angels to rid one of evil spirits or whatever 
might be the need. And, and so some were magnifying these other paths, traditional Jewish paths, popular Jewish paths. Some were mag- magnifying these other paths while at the same time and in doing so, minimizing Jesus. Like the nanosculptors in Lithuania, they were reducing the Redeemer. Now, now most of this book is, is built around Jesus' incomparable role as our perfect and perfectly unique high priest. That's where he goes right away in this book. That's what the author wants them to, to hold on to most of all as he writes to them. So there's a lot coming up in this book as you will begin to see reading this week. There's a lot coming up in this book that focuses on the humanity of Jesus. But keeping that in mind, look with me at how the author decides to begin his treatise. He writes this in chapter 1, verse 1. This is the word of the living God. Long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom he also created the world. He, the Son, is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. And he upholds the universe by the word of his power. After making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. Let's stop there. Without a doubt, this writer, this author, wants his readers to understand from the outset that nothing can compare with Jesus. He is far bigger than even your biggest thoughts. He is far greater than even the best things of this world. He is far more powerful than any other supposed alternative when it comes to having peace with God. In these opening verses of the book, I see three key ways in which the author is magnifying Christ. So look back at verse 1. Look back at verse 1. There we see that number 1, and I'll put these three ideas here, these three key ways in which he's magnifying Christ. We see in verse 1 that, first of all, Jesus is God's final word. Jesus is God's final word. Look at how the writer makes this point. The Old Testament tells us that when God wanted to instruct his people or correct his people or comfort his people, he would send them a prophet. Sometimes that was called a seer, right? A prophet, a seer, a man of God. 
he would send a prophet. So some of these prophets are simply described in the pages of Scripture for us. Some of them aren't even named. Some are named. Other prophets are responsible for the books which now bear their names. You can think of some of them, right? Isaiah, Ezekiel, Zephaniah, Haggai. But the pattern is exactly the same. Whether those prophets are described or whether they're known because a book is named after them, the pattern was the same. Different prophets at different times in different places speaking to different needs. And remember, 75% of your Bible is the Old Testament. So it's chocked full of God, this pattern being worked out and repeated. But, as the author of Hebrews reveals to us in these verses, that pattern has come to an end. It's done. Why is that? Because God, verse 2, has spoken to us by His Son. Now, all the writer is doing here is he understands the, the, the great plan and purposes of God. And this purpose of God in speaking and in, in his revelation was revealed even by Jesus. For example, in Matthew 21, where he told a parable that highlighted this same idea. That parable is traditionally called the parable of the tenants. Tenants, right? Those who rent or lease a building, an apartment, a piece of land, whatever it might be. And you may remember in that parable that as the landowner who was away, he sent servant after servant to those tenants in order to collect his portion of the, the rent or the, the profit that came from the land. And every time those servants were mistreated. Every time those servants were rejected by these tenants. So what did he do in the end? He sent his son. You see, the writer here of Hebrews is, 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 is highlighting the same idea that God sent prophets throughout the Old Testament. He doesn't get into the specifics of them being mistreated as Jesus was talking about those who rejected the prophets and rejected him ultimately. But the same pattern is present. It's the prophets and then the son. The son has been sent. Please don't miss how the plural emphasis in verse 1. For example, many times, many ways, fathers, prophets. That's followed by what? A singular emphasis in verse 2. In these last days, here at the closing of the age, God has only one message. Jesus. That's it. He has one message, and it's Jesus. Jesus. Now, these Jewish readers would not have missed in, 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 in this in this statement, they would not have missed how this finality also pointed to the fulfillment of God's earlier messages. 
And the author here will go on in this book in many different places throughout the book. He will go on to prove that very thing, that Jesus is the fullness of everything that the prophets declared. But look at how the writer continues in verse 2. He goes on to argue, number two, to Jesus all things belong. To Jesus all things belong. I want you to notice how the writer here is emphasizing this idea of all things. Do you see that? Both in the final part of verse 2 and the opening line of verse 3. It says the Son is the heir of all things. Through the Son, God created the world. By the word of His power, the Son upholds the universe. Did you notice the pattern there? There's a parallel arrangement of all those ideas. All things, the world, the universe. Those all go together, right? And notice how those different statements there at the end of verse 2 and the beginning of verse 3, they speak to the past, present, and future. The past. Through the Son, God created the world. That's everything. God created the world through the Son. The present. By the word of His power, Jesus upholds the universe. The future. Jesus is the heir. That is, he will inherit all things. I would say that when it comes to pretty much everything, Jesus is unrivaled, isn't he? Everything in this universe finds its way back to him in some form or fashion. Past, present, and future. Jesus Christ, everything. God's one message for this time is Jesus, the final word. Now, one of his readers, or one of his detractors, might say to this writer of Hebrews, well, isn't that kind of talk taking the focus off of God? Isn't all of this exalted language about Jesus taking the focus off of God? But the author here anticipates this point. He understands what he's saying. He understands the bigness of what he's saying. He anticipates the point. And look what he tells us at the beginning of verse 3. He says, He, the Son, is the radiance of the glory of God. He, the Son, is the exact imprint of His nature, God's nature. Please don't miss what this writer is telling his readers here. What God is telling us. When you look at Jesus, you see God. When you look at Jesus, you see God. God himself. Is the language in verses 1 through 3 too exalted? Absolutely not. No way. Why? Because like nothing else, like no one else, 
Jesus reflects God. He is the radiance of God's own glory. He is the exact imprint of God's own nature. To diminish the greatness of Jesus is to diminish the greatness of God. There are people out there today who are guilty of that very thing because they do not understand the connection. They do not understand the relationship. And this is what the writer here is trying to stress to them. He is trying to stress this idea right from the outset of this letter. And he will drive it home time after time after time. To diminish the greatness of Jesus is to diminish the greatness of God. And do they want to be guilty of that? I think not. These are the opening lines of the book. (laughs) Right? I mean, like, this is right out of the gate. Wow. 100 miles an hour. This is huge. But continuing with this exalted language, we also read that number three, Jesus has dealt with sin once and for all. Jesus has dealt with sin once and for all. This is the author's first mention of what will be his dominant theme throughout this book. The priestly work of Jesus. Now, if one of these Jewish recipients were simply to read that first phrase in the final line of verse 3, they may not be phased at all. It says, after making purification for sins, he sat down. Okay? That could really describe any Levitical priest from the Old Testament doing their priestly duty, taking care of business, right? Offering the proper sacrifices, completing their work, their responsibilities. But look again at how that statement ends. Once you go further, this thing blows up like you wouldn't believe. Look at this. After making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. Oh, wow. Oh, wow. He sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. Not only is there no priest that could be described with those those words, but there's no human being Ever about which that could be said except Jesus. Brothers and sisters, friends, soak in the language here. Soak in the language. He sat down. That means his priestly work was finished. At the right hand of the majesty on high. That means his priestly work was accepted by God. And don't forget about the language already used. Jesus is God's final word. To Jesus all things belong. If this priest is in fact this same incomparable son. Then the purification that he made also must be incomparable. 
The writer spells this out explicitly later in his treatise in chapter 10, verse 14. Take a look. He says, for by a single offering, he, the son, Jesus, has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. Wow. You know that is an incomparable priestly work. Never has there been any priestly work like that. No Old Testament sacrifice even comes close. Because as the author will go on to tell us, the blood of bulls and goats cannot truly take away sin. It was more of a picture. It was teaching the people that they needed atonement. That a life needed to be, to, to be given for their own. That was the price of their sin. They were taught that from the Old Testament. But those sins really had not been dealt with until the Son. The final word of God. The one to whom all things belong. Through him the world was created. Even now, he upholds the universe by the word of his power. And not only has he made purifications for sins, but he sat down. He sat down. It's done. It's over. He has completed this work. An incomparable work. By a single offering, he has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. So again, think about the magnitude of this introduction. Jesus, God's final word. Jesus, Lord of all things. Jesus, the one who has dealt with sin once and for all. Though some had, and though some were being tempted, minimizing Jesus was nothing more, as the author would go on to show, than a foolish denial of reality. You see, this is the truth. This is reality here in terms of the greatness of Jesus. But what about us? What about you? What about you? If you were charged, if God came to you and he wanted you to write to these first readers, knowing their situation, would you begin your message this same way? If you knew how these people were struggling, would you lift their eyes in this same way? What about when you're struggling is this the message you preach to yourself? As we begin this Christmas season, the perennial temptation for many outside the church is to cherish the baby Jesus but neglect the man. But though the Word became flesh and probably weighed about six pounds... The sun was never reduced. Amen? Though the Word became flesh, He never shrunk. He wasn't lessened or diminished in any way. 
But we know full well that our perspective can shrink. We know that. Isn't that the pitfall toward which these believers were being tempted? That their perspective would be minimized regarding Jesus? Isn't that the pitfall? Isn't that the temptation? Brothers, sisters, friends, listen. God wants us to understand the greatness of Jesus Christ. But he doesn't want us to simply confess these truths as if there was a great ultimate pop quiz at the end of time, right? And you better get the answers right. You better take that number, number, heavenly number two pencil, circle in the little dot, right, and get them all right. And then you might be in God's presence forever. No, he doesn't want you simply to confess these truths about the greatness of Jesus. He wants you to walk in these truths. He wants me to walk in these truths. When it comes to holidays that mark historic moments in the life of Christ, you know that we have Christmas to honor his birth. You know that we have Good Friday to honor his death and Easter to celebrate his resurrection. But what we also need is a transfiguration day. We do. We need a transfiguration day. A a day to honor the moment in the life of Christ when a handful of His disciples beheld His unrivaled glory. As one of those men, Peter, would later confess, but we were eyewitnesses of His majesty. 2 Peter 1.16 Of all the things Peter's talking about in that letter, he's going back in the opening verses to this idea. He's going back to the transfiguration of Jesus. What is the author of Hebrews doing by starting his message this way? He wants his readers to taste something of what Peter and the others experienced on that mountain. In the same way, God wants us to be eyewitnesses this morning as we look, as we are fed by his word, to be eyewitnesses of Christ's majesty. Think with me for a few minutes about how these amazing descriptions might speak to your life, to my life. Especially when we are tempted to reduce our Redeemer. Our perspective can shrink, can it? Our view of Christ can be diminished. When we are tempted to reduce our Redeemer, when we're tempted to minimize the sufficiency of Christ as we maximize the supposed greatness of this or that thing, of this or that technique, of this or that approach or experience. For example, in thinking about how these connect with your life, take a look. Though Jesus is God's final word, does he have the final word in your life? On paper, most of us would say yes. 
But we know there are so many voices all around us every single day. There are so many voices inside us every single day. We have loyalties, some spoken, some unspoken. Often we want to please others to an unhealthy degree. In the same way, we often want to please ourselves to an unhealthy degree. You may wrestle with words spoken long ago, or you may feel paralyzed about what might be said in the coming hours or days. But who has the final word in your life? Who has the final word? The final word about your life, about your value, about what is right and wrong, about your past, your present, your future, about what matters most, about love, about hope, about your safety, about your destiny. Who has the final word? Brothers and sisters, Friends, it has to be Jesus. He is God's final word. It has to be Jesus. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son. There is no fuller, there is no truer word than that. Think about this. Though to Jesus belong all things, does he have all of you? Does he have all of you? Is that just another way of asking the first question? Yeah, sure. (laughs) They're related. But I think it also gets us thinking about our lives in a different way, this question. Think about all those areas of your life your relationships and responsibility, your schedule and your finances, your hopes and your dreams, your sins, your sorrows, your secrets. Have you given? And are you giving all those things over to Jesus? Or are you afraid of what He might think or what he might do? Are you afraid of giving up that idol or opening up that box of hurts, believing that you will wither or be crushed or that you will sink like a stone? Please hear what God has for you this morning. If Jesus Christ can uphold the universe by the word of his power, he can certainly uphold you. Regardless of what you might believe could crush you, what you believe will sink you, he can uphold you. Finally, connecting the greatness of Jesus to walking in the greatness of Jesus. In light of that, think about this final question. Though Jesus has dealt with sin once and for all, 
Are you still focused on what he forgave? Are you still focused on what he forgave? For those who by the grace of God have trusted in Jesus as their only hope for this life and for the next, all your sin has been purified by Christ. All your sin has been purified. As the writer will go on to express it in chapter 9, verse 26, take a look. He says, he has appeared once for all at the end of the ages to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. He has sat down. The debt has been paid. The corruption cleansed. The verdict rendered. But nevertheless, we are tempted to go back, aren't we? We are tempted to go back. We are often tempted in a variety of ways to pretend like this didn't happen, like nothing happened, as if there was no new life, as if our guilt remains, as if we are the same person, defined by the same desires, destined for the same judgment. But we aren't. We are not. And God's forgiveness is His permission to you to let go. He has. Let me say that again. His forgiveness is His permission to you to let go. He has. Do you see? Do you see? How when we lose sight of the greatness of Jesus Christ, when he's simply that baby in the manger or that glorified life coach or that or the content of a beloved creed, other things begin to look so much bigger when he's simply that. Christmas is precious Because the divine word became flesh. But word and flesh have to be kept together, don't they? We have to keep both together. That is, we have to celebrate his humanness without ever letting go of his godness. This is what the author of Hebrews is telling his readers. And we do this, we hold on to both with our lips and our lives. Amen? Our lips and our lives. So would you pray this morning? Would you pray in light of what God has revealed to us about Jesus? In light of how he has spoken, would you pray? How he's spoken to your heart this morning. We praise God together. That the overwhelming, the staggering greatness of Jesus also means an overwhelming, staggering amount of grace for all who come. All of us. No matter where you've been, no matter what you've done, let him speak his final word into your life. Let him Uphold you as he does all things. Let him cleanse you or remind you of his perfect cleansing.
There is abundant grace, brothers and sisters. Friends, there's abundant grace, even for reducers like us. Amen? Amen. Would you pray with me? In quietness.